0: How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to the Conscious Bodybuilding Podcast. Uh, today, my guest is Menno Henselmans. Uh, Menno recently wrote a book, The Science of Self-Control, and I wanted to uh, discuss that book with Menno today, uh, just mostly because it has had a profound impact on um, my daily life. And um, I think it's an amazing book, and I think more people should be aware of Menno. So, uh, Meno, thanks for coming on.
1: My pleasure and thank you for the compliment.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you wrote a great book. Um, I, before we get into the book, um, as I mentioned, I think more people should be familiar with who you are. Could, could you briefly um, talk about yourself and how you got to the point at which you decided to write this book?
1: Sure. So most people know me for my, um, my PT course, my public speaking and general fitness uh, information. So I do scientific research, I coach people one-on-one online coaching, uh, starting off with mostly bodybuilders, powerlifters, but these days also doing a lot of uh, gen pop, people that just want to look good naked or just want a decent physique. And that sort of took off and things were very successful over the past decade. I've uh, started publishing scientific research and now educate other people on how to become personal trainers with my own certification program. But there were a lot of things that I'm also very interested in, especially since I originally studied behavioral economics, which is in large part behavioral psychology and diet adherence as a coach, any coach will tell you diet adherence is one of the most important things of, of coaching. So there was, there was definitely an intersection there and my general interest in psychology, as well as just self-improvement and productivity. But a lot of these concepts don't lend themselves very well to a Facebook post or an Instagram post. You know, if, you, if, you, you know, well, if you've read the book, so you'll find that the, the first chapters are all general psychology information and explaining how willpower works and also debunking a lot of common but false ideas about how willpower works. And only when you understand all of those things and you have that foundation, can you really go into the rest of the concrete tips in the rest of the book. So I I really saved all that up essentially and just put it into one book that's essentially like four books together because one one chapter is almost one book and one chapter is on diet adherence, one chapter is on productivity, one chapter is on general motivation and one smaller chapter is on how to make working out less effortful. So that's basically uh, how it all came to be.
0: Yeah, most definitely. I mean, I think... um... Coaching others myself, um, I, I, I wanted to mention this. I think that generally speaking, when you coach um, competitive athletes um, or people who are a little bit more involved in this, um, I guess the assumption sometimes is that self, this, the self-control and this productivity, all this doesn't affect them because they are generally more adherent. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe sometimes you have to work a little bit more on those self-control uh, habits and, and, and such with someone who isn't as experienced. But I think that is a common misconception because for myself and other people that I've been able to help, when, we, when I start to focus on um, you know, a lot of these things in the book and a lot of these habits, uh, it just makes um, adherence easier and more sustainable. Um, I think, I don't know, you know bodybuilders, especially like you talk post-show and, and unsustainable dieting practices, a lot of the time they do you know, have binge behaviors and have unhealthy relationship with food, et cetera. Um, and I think it's really important, not only for um, the general population to understand these, but someone who is competitive athlete, just because there's no, um, like, you don't get bonus points for making things harder, really. Um, and I've, mm-hmm. I found it very uh, applicable uh, in a lot of ways for my bodybuilding, as well as um, people who are just, um, you know, trying to get in shape. Um, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I wanted to get into some topics um, in the book. Um, I think people could make the misconception of classifying this as maybe a self-help or a motivational book or something like that. Uh, where, where does this book uh, separate itself from maybe something um, uh, self-help or motivational
1: mm-hmm. category? Yeah, I mean, technically, I think it is a self-help book. And in Amazon, I had to, you have limited categories, right? Especially when yeah. it comes to fitness and the more niche things so i think in, in amazon it's in in both self-help and applied psychology okay. and applied psychology is pretty vague most people probably think of like you know a psychiatrist they read applied psychology books to learn to perfect their trade and self-help books are more the complete opposite end, where most people have or at least actually a lot of people on my my amazon reviews actually say like i hate self-help i hate self-help books i love self-help books and I completely understand that, that sentiment. I have the same thing. Most self-help books, I think, are really vague. Uh, the opposite of my data-driven, evidence-based, you know, very science-heavy approach. Right. And just a lot of uh, you know wizzy woozy stuff. That really, when you read when you read it all, you're like, yeah, okay, makes sense. That makes sense. And some things are like, okay, way out there, very spiritual. But then when you read the whole book in the end, you're like, okay, so what really? changes now like what am I supposed to do in my life you know uh, you need a, a ground vision and it's like okay so concretely what do I do and right. you're you're really no further than you were before
0: yeah I mean I've read uh, many self-help books a lot of the mo- more popular ones too and um, sometimes I can take stuff away from it and I de- it definitely influences the way I think sometimes but um, for example like this book there were things there were things that I read that I implemented that day um, just due to the practicality of some of those things. Um, I think as far as how digestible the book is, I was able to actually make uh, uh, noticeable differences just by implementing a lot of it. And I think it it probably is in part because it's very data-driven, right? And um, it's not Mm -hmm. vague, as you mentioned. Um, So yeah, I I would agree. I don't know if it fits perfectly into self-help or if we were going to maybe recategorize self-help and and have a trend in this direction. I think that'd be really cool, but... Um, so there's an elephant on the cover of the book when mm-hmm. I went to read this, I had no idea why that was, it was just like, you know, uh, interesting, but as, as I read the book, I started to understand, um, that it is an analogy that you refer back to a couple of times. So what is what the elephant, why did you choose to put it on the cover of the book?
1: Good question. I've actually never had that question before from anyone. Oh, really? Interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, even though I think, uh, it's, it's, it's not readily, readily obvious. The the elephant comes from the metaphor, which I borrowed from Jonathan Haidt, which I highly recommend, brilliant psychologist. And he uses the metaphor of a rider and an elephant to explain how the brain works. And those systems, in my view, are very, very similar to what Daniel Kahneman uses or describes as system one and system two. And Paul McLean has has talked about three systems like the reptile brain, the paleomammalian brain and the prefrontal cortex, which is the more rational brain. I think all of those systems sometimes some people also talk about the intuitive and the rational brain all of those things i think refer kind of to the same concepts where which also makes sense in terms of the organization of the brain the lower parts literally the lower parts of the brain but also metaphorically uh, intellectually speaking they are the system one the intuitive system they are like the elephant they are also what we have in common with most animals they are very associative, um, they, are, they function fast, they operate based on emotions, intuitions, heuristics, so it's, it's, it's like if you would take away the top part of our brain, we would essentially be very much like many other animals. But what we humans have, we on top of this, literally on top of it in our brain, we have the prefrontal cortex, or also called the neocortex, and this is evolved literally on top of it and as a sort of an add-on on on this other uh, brain and this part is the rational brain. This part is what separates us in large part from most animals. It allows us to do math, learn new languages and learn learn language um, in the first place. It allows us to make complicated logical choices and to reason rationally. And in large part the the neocortex, the rational part of our brain, system two, however you call it, the rider, the rational rider that's sitting on top of the the emotional elephant, this part is a small part of what all of what goes on in our brain. And it's mostly there to control system one because system one is far more powerful. It does most of the things. There are estimates from psychology uh, generally include that over 90%, sometimes 95%. I've even seen 99% as figures saying that, those things that occur in our brain are not conscious so our brain is doing a lot of things uh, like making sense of all the auditory and sensory input and in the end what comes into our consciousness and what we can rationally think about is a tiny fraction of that and it's only the end result of all of these other processes that already occurred before that and with that we can essentially modulate system one so essentially you can there are the metaphor of a rider sitting on top of an elephant is really apt in that the elephant's really doing most of the work but the rider is trying to steer the elephant in some directions and it's also apt in the sense that the elephant ultimately essentially has control in that it's much more powerful so if you're smart the rider can keep control of the elephant but when it really comes down to it when you're in a state of what's called ego depletion for example or uh, the fuck it effect you're uh you don't have a leg to stand on no pun intended so that's basically the the idea of the metaphor and on the cover you also see that the brain um even though it's much smaller it weighs more that's the metaphor on the cover than the elephant which is an analogy that basically i'm i'm telling you how to rationally or how you can make your brain more powerful than your emotions oh
0: got it oh that's really cool i didn't realize that yeah so um i think the, the concept's really cool and it, and it made it very, um, when you referred back to that analogy, it was very like, I, I understood it a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's pretty fair to say in like psychology, um, willpower is becoming a little bit more understood, at least from some of the resources and books that I've read. Um, generally speaking, like on a general population level, I think we mm-hmm. still, there's still a lot of misconceptions about it. Um, I guess, the
1: a good question to ask would be is willpower a limited resource yeah that, that's probably one of the biggest conceptions that the analogy of willpower as a muscle and I actually believe that myself and even I was taught it in school although they did at that point already say like this is, is a bit contentious and some things don't make a lot of sense but it's still the right. dominant theory yeah and as I, as I did more research I basically found that it really doesn't make sense. Like there are a lot of things about how our willpower work or works and when it doesn't fail, that clearly show it's not a limited research. For one, willpower does not deplete when you're doing something you love. If you're passionate about something, you can get into a state of what psychologists and presumably some drug addicts and hippies also call flow. And this is a state where you're basically very focused on something you like to do, and there's there are no signs of fatigue. You can As long as you're really passionate and motivated for something, you can do something for hours. And in general, the more motivated you are for something, the less willpower depletion there is. So I often talk about willpower failure as a switch in attentional resources, a switch in your attention from have-to tasks to want-to tasks. So your brain is essentially bored. Willpower failure in large part is a lot like boredom. And it's, it's not like a vat that drains you know, this limited resource theory because there are a lot of situations where there's, there's no sign of willpower failure. And there's also a lot of research that pointed into, or rather a, a lack of research, despite lots of attempts to look at what would be the limited resource, like what is it in our brain that is depleting? And researchers have found no such thing. The closest they found is blood sugar, where they thought, and indeed they could see in some research that if you're giving people sugar then it enhances self-control. But later research showed that, A, if people did not believe that willpower is limited, then it no longer worked. They didn't need the sugar anymore. And B, if you give them artificially sweetened water, or if you have them only rinse their mouth with the sugar and not actually swallow it, they just spit it out, it also works. Which goes to show that it really is simply, it's either a placebo effect, in some research, and other research, it's simply the pleasure, the sensation of pleasure, and our willpower and pleasure and well-being are very intricately linked, because essentially, what willpower failure is, and this is a large part what goes on in the anterior cingulate cortex. If you're focused on something that's not providing instant gratification, then essentially there's sort of a clock that, that that starts to tick in your brain, and your brain is saying, "Okay, we are not deriving any pleasure from this," so. Over time, you're, you're becoming unhappier and unhappier. And as the brain is doing something that's uh, and realizing that something is making you unhappier, it tries to shift your attention to other things. And you can literally see this if you put uh, scanners on someone's brain and you look at which regions of the brain are, are more active or what kind of signs people are more sensitive to, then you can see that if people are in a state of willpower depletion or if they're really focused on something like doing their taxes for two hours, then you can see that they are more sensitive in the reward pathways in the brain light up more when you show them something like uh, Facebook icons or dollar signs or sex. So you can literally see that it's like the brain is telling you "Mm, these things that we're doing right now, we don't like it very much. Look at these other things. That's cool.
0: Yeah, so the the brain is essentially uh, wants to move towards
1: pleasure seeking behavior. Yes. Yes, it, it, and, and from, in large part, that's also what what the brain does. Like, it, yeah, a lot of the things we do are, um, or we're structured in such a way as to seek pleasure and avoid pain. Right,
0: and and it's very difficult, um, or it it has its challenges to be able to delay gratification and pleasure in order to focus on something that may have a benefit later. As as yes. humans, I guess. Um, Definitely. What was I going to
1: say? It was. Um,
0: Totally lost my train of thought: deferring pleasure
1: is for investments in general, giving up something now to get something for later. That is the whole essence of, of most self control decisions. Right. and of, that's also what we need the rational part of our brain for what it evolved for, because system one, emotional thinking, when most animals, they can't make decisions based on foresight. So that, that really is what we have the, the, um, the prefrontal cortex for, but it's also uh, strenuous. We don't want to always do that you can see in animals that the more investment choices animals have to make because animals also sometimes have to you can see that in some monkeys for example uh if you have to collect food for winter or if it's more difficult to gather food you can see that they have better self-control compared to opportunistic feeders those typically have very little self-control or cows for example they just eat grass the whole day and there's you know there's nothing better for them to do at any moment in time than just to eat grass right so they have very poor self-control almost done.
0: right. Right. Um, and, and from an evolutionary perspective, basically the system two has developed in order to control system one. And that's what kind of separates us from a lot of animals that are opportunistic in, in nature. Is that kind of how that worked?
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Cool. Um, so to kind of Go off of that. How how do we use our knowledge of System One and System Two in order to uh, be more be more productive and um, exert better self
1: control in our daily life? And there are there are a lot of things um, that we can do based on this knowledge. Uh, a big part, I think, one of the big ones that for both that I've seen the most impact on people that have read my book and people uh, my own clients is probably taking breaks because it helps both for productivity and for diet adherence. A lot of people wait too long while they're doing things they don't like until their self-control fails. And ideally you want to preempt that because when, and this is also where productivity and diet adherence intersect because when your willpower is depleting, when you're doing things, have two things that you have to stay focused on, you're getting bored slash fatigued. You're also increasing your risk of diet Uh, deviations because if if people see food in such a state it becomes very difficult to resist it because the brain is primed for instant gratification and you see food and there's a strong impulse to say eat the food and that increases your reliance even further on self-control so in large part a bit a a big part of the book is that you want to take breaks while you're doing things uh, that you don't like doing preempt that that especially the fuck it effect, which is basically what occurs when willpower reserves drain to such an extent that you're like, okay, whatever. You know, a lot of people have this at some point. If you have a long day at work or if you're going to a restaurant and you're constantly fighting self-control battles and especially if you've had some alcohol, at some point there's this point where a lot of people just go like, okay, screw it. I'm just having whatever. And if you get to that point, you can do a lot of damage. And bodybuilders have this very often uh, post-show when there's not a clear plan and it's just, there's a lot of foods you can eat now. There, there's, there's no more deadline. And then it's just, okay, all the, all the breaks are off. We're just gonna eat everything we want. And you, but just a little bit of foresight and preventing those scenarios, you can make huge differences in both in terms of diet adherence and
0: productivity. Right. Um, I think being able to be ahead of um, your willpower fatigue, or your, uh, system to fatigue is really important for diet adherence. Um, for a lot of reasons, I think like you, when you mentioned, um, you know, someone who had a really stressful strenuous day at work and they get home, um, not having to, you know, having, having prepared food and not having to rely on, um, uh, you know, making decisions, decision fatigue is something you mentioned in the book. Um, having, having something in their fridge, ready to go, you know, being, being ahead of the curve, I think is a really important thing for a lot of people. Um, I think, I don't know if you mentioned this in the book, but something that I've heard a lot is that, uh, I think you did that people who have the best willpower use it the least, right? Mm-hmm. So, yes. uh, their life is set up in a way in which they don't have to exert their willpower. Uh, some things that are mentioned in the book is like maybe not keeping food on your counter or invisible spaces, having prepared food around. Um, and I think like having breaks preemptively is really important. Um, and there's a few other things like, um, as far as breaks in between, um, tasks like uh, cold showers and and other things that I've been utilizing naps as well Mm -hmm. has been really cool. Um, and, and, and I just wanted to touch on the duration at which you can do a task that maybe is, um, requires self-control. Um, I think you said 90 minutes is probably a good window at -hmm. which before you may need a break. Is that, is that what was listed in the book?
1: Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of research, especially by uh, Anders Eriksson, mm-hmm. who sort of made it his life to become the expert on experts in terms of um, studying people that become really, really good at what they do, like violinists. And funny enough, also research on typesetters, morse code operators. Oh, wow. And... Uh, This is also the the lines of research where the 10,000 hour rule comes from, which is not really a rule, but it's sort of a rough guideline. Right. And he sees in his research that about 90 minutes is the time that most people can really deliberately focus on something. And the key word here is deliberate because most people spend a lot of time doing stuff, but they don't spend that much time getting stuff done. And there's a big difference there. Like, if you look at survey data, for example, I've quoted some in the book, you see that most office workers are only productive, even self admittedly, <laughs> for like three hours a day. Right. So most people are less than 50% of the time. And speaking as a former business consultant, I can say that is 100% accurate. Like a lot of people, probably they have one good focused work in them of about 90 minutes. So, you know, three hours is about two 90 90-minute stretches. When they get to work, and then after lunchtime, they have one more bout. And after that, it's pretty much, you know, you're still doing stuff, but you're not really uh, being very productive anymore. And probably if you would just force yourself, and then especially if your employer gave you the opportunity to say, well, if you get this done, then you can go home. I think a lot of people could get it done in right. about three hours. Yeah. And there's also what uh, Ericsson found in his research that even expert performers, like violinists that become the best in the world at what they do, and for for people that don't know, be, the being a violinist it's, it may sound like uh, not very impressive, but it's one of the most skillful things, uh, and there's murderous competition. It's it's an extremely extremely skill based um, profession for yeah. for professionals. So yeah, even those you see that it's like two to four hours. You know, some some do as little as two hours per day on average. Really focused work, but when they're yeah. doing it, they're really in the zone. They're really focused.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, that's. Uh, I think the more the more um, like d- maybe data driven companies you see. Um, like I-, I lived in Silicon Valley before I lived here, and I think mm-hmm. a lot of those companies are implementing uh, more breaks and things like that. Um, and yes, definitely Google with nap Right, right. That's really cool. Um, I think one of the funniest statistics in that that chapter was uh, the fact that. Uh, workers one of the um ways they spent their time was looking for other jobs <laughs> right it's literally <laughs> in the
1: top 10 of what they've it's spent hilarious. most of their time on
0: <laughs> right yeah that's really funny um okay so how um <clears throat> another one that's been really interesting to me that i've been utilizing uh, especially the last couple of days um is caffeine so mm-hmm. i read the chapter on how to make uh workouts more or less effortful and then also there's the yerkes dodson law i believe Mm-hmm. so yep. can you explain that and then um maybe if if there is any relation how that maybe um like we can utilize our caffeine uh, in a more strategic fashion instead of just maybe habitual as i know i was doing prior to reading this book
1: mm-hmm. yeah i think a lot of people caffeine um they abuse it essentially which is the reason that many drugs become illegal even if they're not necessarily detrimental right and i think the in fact the biggest argument for drugs not being illegal like alcohol tobacco um caffeine is that you can abuse them a lot without uh major problems it takes a long time before you really do a big amount of damage whereas with like heroin most pills most things that you can snort you can do it a lot of damage very quickly right even though you know objectively speaking if you were to be meticulous and rational with the dosing they might not be inherently more damaging especially when it comes to like MDMA, LSD, they're they're really not that bad compared to like weed, for example. Right. Uh, Weed's also not terrible, by the way. But um, key point to get to your question, your thoughts law is basically um, a law law or a psychological phenomenon that says there's an optimum level of arousal for most tasks. And that means more caffeine is not necessarily better. So there's a certain amount of arousal that you want for, for any kind of task. And this is higher typically for simple tasks. So if you just have to, you know, plug in a lot of numbers in a, a spreadsheet, for example, you're gonna do, you're probably gonna do that better when you have had some caffeine, you know, put some music on, put the caffeine on uh, or get some caffeine in you and just start typing all the numbers. But if I give you five red bulls and, and now I tell you, look, Here's an extremely complicated uh, math puzzle to solve. Then your mind's spinning and you're all over the place. You're, you're probably gonna have a difficult time um, focusing uh, on that. So that, that goes to show that there's an, an optimum level. And I think for most tasks, this optimum is not that high. And for complicated tasks in particular, it's not high. In fact, it's probably not being stimulated at all. is optimal. It's only for simple tasks that being stimulated is generally a net positive. So even for chess, for example, there's there's research showing that if you're more stimulated, then even if it, if it's uh, a nootropic drug like modafinil uh, or Ritalin, uh, like methylphenidate, then w- which is supposed to make you smarter, people don't actually become better at chess. They they get more sort of immersed into it, but they lose more matches based on time. So in like the, they they become better at like a very focused in a focused and narrow sense of the word, but they're not actually objectively better in terms of net performance because they lose sight of the bigger picture. Right, And that, that's, I think, what, what happens to a lot of people. Plus, if you add to that, that withdrawal and tolerance with caffeine are actually much more significant than most people realize. Those, those occur at dosa, dosages of basically above 100 milligram per day. There was a recent study showing little habituation, um, but the average dosage there was about 100 milligrams per day. So that's probably a decent uh, ballpark number. Other research shows that, especially when you get to 300 plus, which is like three cups of coffee, then over time, sleep quality suffers and anxiety increases. And you typically find yourself getting into a negative spiral where, especially if sleep quality suffers more, you're more sleep deprived. Therefore, you consume more caffeine. Therefore, you're more sleep deprived. Therefore, you consume more caffeine. And in the end, you, yeah a lot of people have this, you get to a point where it feels like caffeine still benefits you but it actually just makes you less worse because this is also a problem in a lot of studies when they, they have people that drink caffeine which is almost everyone on the planet and they say okay for, before a study for about 48 hours you can't consume any caffeine and then they do the study and they have placebo versus caffeine and they see okay who's, who's gonna do better and then caffeine does better but What this research doesn't show is whether caffeine actually improves it above baseline, or whether it's so that you need the caffeine to perform normal, essentially. Yeah. Because a lot of people that use caffeine, they're actually going into withdrawal, especially if you have headaches, if you have difficulty concentrating, if your workouts are a lot less, um, if your workout quality is noticeably lower without caffeine, you're probably at least habituated to some extent. Right. So. If you're in that state, it, caffeine isn't really helping anymore. It's just undoing withdrawal. It's just you need the caffeine to feel normal. Right. And if you're more meticulous with your dosage, and typically I recommend 100 milligrams per day on average about max, then you can actually profit from caffeine every single day. Every time that you use it, it makes you net better, not just you know less worse. And the dosage also doesn't interfere with sleep if you at least consume it early enough on the day. I find that I still I need at least eight hours to metabolize a dosage like that, but I'm pretty sensitive. However, uh, there's one study showing, or two even, that a double a double coffee or a double cappuccino or a double espresso, I think it was, yeah, even at breakfast, still impairs sleep quality at night that day, and that's yeah. far beyond where most people think they still have an effect of it. It's you know there's no subjective effect anymore, but objectively if you measure with polysomnography, some sleep quality, it still goes down. Yeah. The half-life is pretty long for caffeine. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And I think it has, um, effects on the receptors that persist beyond the active life of the substance. Oh, wow. yeah. 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 I can't remember
0: what podcast I was listening to, but someone said that every sleep researcher they talk to, uh, none of them drink caffeine or at least on a regular basis. And, right. And, uh, they were like, if that doesn't tell you something, then, you know, um, yeah and so sleep yeah, this is so important, right, right? 100%. Um, yeah, I, uh, I've been strategically um, lowering my caffeine intake. Um, I think one of the things that really helped me was when I read in the book that um, uh, so some of the side effects uh, maybe just due to uh, my tolerance wasn't super high. I think I was having a half cup twice a day of coffee. Uh, but I think some of the side effects we are just expecting to be really tired, um, mm-hmm. and I, I, actually did strategically use r- rhodiola. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of that dietary supplement yep. to kind of attenuate some of the, uh, effects. And, um, I felt, I feel surprisingly good. Um, like today is the first day I, I, I had tea, um, cause I have to get some work done this morning. And, uh, mm-hmm. uh and as you mentioned in the book, like L-theanine, um, is a little bit mm-hmm. better if you have to focus a little bit more, if you are going to choose to use caffeine. Um, and it just, I just realized like how habitual, caffeine consumption was for me. Like I was just consuming it to consume it. It was more of just a ritual that I did. Um, and I also want to get the performance enhancing benefits when I do go to use it for training. So, um, mm-hmm. I think that's one of the reasons why I chose to lower it, but yeah, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people hear that and be upset, uh, because caffeine oh, yes. is so
1: it's very, it's very
0: ingrained in our culture. Um, but you th- know, that in
1: itself, right. That in itself tells you a lot when you tell someone, you know, this is a problem because it's addicting and they're like, oh my God, I can't believe I, uh, there's no way I can do without this. It's like, right. that, that's kind of the point. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's what an addiction is. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. So, um, and, and before we get off that topic, so um, you mentioned uh, in that chapter, nicotine also uh, is a stimulant that can help you with tasks that don't require as much focus. Um, I think if you're going to be strategic and, you know, you say needed some level of arousal, you could definitely, um, you know, mm-hmm. have different days where you have maybe caffeine or, or a small amount of nicotine, which you mentioned in the book is fairly safe up to fifteen yes. milligrams. It doesn't de- de- uh, develop dependency um, as, as, long, as, long. as, as long, long as
1: it's gum. As long as it's gum. Yes. Yes. Right. Yes. Not um, yeah.
0: like smoking or or chew tobacco or something like that. Um, I just had this question briefly. Um, would something like like THC, since it is I, I mean, for myself, it's not, it, it, it brings me, uh, I'm not as aroused. Would that mm-hmm. be something that you could potentially utilize in and, an and instance where you needed to focus more? Or, um, I mean, I mean, maybe it's different inter, inter-individual, but um, I don't know, just something that I was curious about.
1: Um, I think in terms of focus, it's probably mostly going to be the nicotine from the tobacco that helps. I think pure THC, like weed or marijuana, um, like Hosh brownies, I don't think it's going to have I think there are very few scenarios where it's net positive, like a nootropic yeah. effect. Right, right. Because it also has a lot of detrimental effects on, um, on, on simply cognitive functioning. Right. But it, it can definitely lower anxiety and reduce or improve focus in the sense of reducing anxiety and reducing jitters and the like. But I think yeah. often you would be better off, like with l or nicotine, if you want a stimulant effect, but with still the focus.
0: Yeah, I think that's where um, I intuitively had used very small amounts like microdose of uh, THC and it's because I think I have a, uh, sometimes I have a higher level, baseline level of anxiety um, and just mm-hmm. that, I guess, brings me to a point where I can be um, relaxed enough to focus on a task. Um, so I guess maybe- It's also a really good option there. Oh, really? Really? <clears throat> yeah, I've read yeah. about that a little bit. Um, it has kind of this, this
1: inhibition effect and, and whatnot. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I don't discuss it in the book, but I have <coughs> an article, extensive article on my website about cool. uh, Fennibut. That's uh, probably, if you're looking at like, something that reduces anxiety, especially social anxiety, Fennibut's probably the best there is. Yeah, um, And best to buy it now because it's probably a matter of time before it's, yeah, <laughs> I, it's very difficult that. to obtain it. <laughs> yeah, Kratom is another one in
0: that category. I don't know if it has the same effects, but uh, as far as legality, probably long-term mm-hmm. may be difficult to get. Um, okay. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, that's that's really cool. I'm glad we touched on that. Um, so, I guess the next thing I wanted to talk about was um, postprandial somnolence. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something that I deal with because um, I am bodybuilding. I eat a large volume of food, and mm-hmm. uh, I also have a business that I'm trying to run. And um, sometimes it's very difficult because I'm eating such large volumes of food. Um, you know, say like I get home from the gym and I have, uh, like, uh, you know, half box of cereal or a box of cereal with skim milk. And, uh, I just want to go to sleep after. And like, it's generally yeah. a time where I try to get some work done uh, and it's really difficult. Like I have to fight it, you know, sometimes I, and, but and also, um, I've considered using some of your breaks and, uh, you know, some of those breaks are, are, are arousing. And I also don't want to be aroused in that time because I'm trying to recover and
1: put mm-hmm. myself
0: in a relaxed state. So, um, what is postprandial somnolence, and um, is is there any way to attenuate its effects, or we just kind of have to power through it? Yeah,
1: <laughs> don't have good news here. Uh, postprandial <laughs> somnolence is um, the the phenomenon that after eating, so postprandial, after being in the um, digestive state, you become sleepy, somnolent, and traditional explanations for this have been. Um, blood running away from the uh, brain to the digestive tract, yeah, which is one perfect. of those things that's like, it's like sort of makes sense in a pop, pop science kind of way. But if you really think about it, it would be really, really bad if the brain didn't get enough blood every time you ate. So that, that's, that's complete nonsense. Uh, there, there's, there's plenty of blood to, to fuel the brain. And if anything, the, the brain would always be prioritized. So what really happens is there's a, a shift in sympathetic tone. So your nervous system essentially goes into rest and digest mode, which is parasympathetic dominance. And if you're in fight or flight mode, that's called sympathetic dominance. So after you've eaten, your your body, evolutionarily speaking, is, is essentially like, okay, you know, mission accomplished. Maybe you find someone to procreate with, and then we are all set in this life. So... Um, you want to be aroused, typically, to either find a mate or to find food, evolutionarily speaking. And when you've done either of those, you get sleepy and relaxed. So, there, there's, there's not much we can do about this, and the effect is in most research proportional to energy intake. Food volume itself uh, doesn't matter that much. Uh, it can help in terms of increasing satiety, which also enhances the, the the relaxing effect. Like, if you're still hungry, you won't be relaxed. But Uh, Yeah. If you just have a high energy intake, like I'm currently bulking on 4,000 calories a day. So I have the same thing after meals. It's not a good time to be super productive. Yeah. And especially in the mornings, um, it's just, it's annoying because I I prefer to do intermittent fasting, but there's, I'm going to have difficulty getting all my calories. in If I don't eat until like midday.
0: Right. Yeah. I've learned to love dieting for that reason. I didn't know until I read this book, why I felt so much more productive when I was dieting. Um, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of it is just due to the fact of the, uh, caloric volume that I'm consuming. And, and I do like, uh, to kind of fast, so to speak, I'm not generally hungry in the morning. So if I, if I can push pack that meal, um, you know, I would, I would prefer to, but again, you run into that, that problem of food volume in, in a more limited window. Um, yeah, I, I think I've just learned intuitively to love dieting and, and because I felt more productive, but I realize that it's probably in part due to the fact that I'm just eating a large volume of food. I just get so much more work done. I'm so much more productive. I think being slightly, um, in that state of like, uh, I don't know what the proper term is, but like when you're not uh, satiated, so you're not in like a rest and digest, you're not, um, you kind of in between. Yeah. I, I, I'm able to, um, I don't know if it's like the urge to eat or whatever, that that sort of energy, I'm able to be able to like act on things a little bit better. And I guess maybe again, because my baseline level of energy is a little bit lower when I'm eating a larger volume, I I don't know, maybe.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are a few things you can try, but they're, they're not gonna be super successful. So one thing that does tend to work somewhat anecdotally, but not in research is higher fat, lower carb. And research finds that it's just the energy content. The fat to carb ratio does not have a significant effect, but it's mostly limited to relatively small meals. And I don't notice an effect either if it's a 500 calorie meal, but if it's all you can eat sushi and I eat 2000 calories mostly coming from rice, then I'm really tired. And I don't get that if I have like barbecue ribs or something, you know, I don't eat that much, but typically I don't don't think I get uh, high protein, high fat meals don't give me the effect as much. So there might be something there. You know, some people also call it carb knockout, which the, the name probably comes from somewhere. Right. Um, it, so that yeah. might help. And like smaller meals. Is it related they, you know, to
0: blood the the glucose at all?
1: Sorry. Right. No, it's not. Um, you, you would think so. And research has looked at this extensively. In fact, blood sugar is one of the most overrated things uh, in, in nutrition, like at all. Uh, at least for non-diabetics. Of course, for diabetics, it's it's a it's a big it's a big thing. But you know, for most people, for one, you have to realize that there's like four grams of glucose, four grams of sugar in the blood. That's it, okay. And this it's it simply very tightly regulated. So if you're, if you're not diabetic, then it's gonna be in the range, a really, really narrow range around four grams. And that simply doesn't have big physiological effects. And they've even done a lot of research where they follow people around with continuous glucose monitoring. And a lot of people think they have problems with blood sugar. Like they say, okay, I'm, I'm going hypoglycemic now. I can feel it. I have low blood sugar. And then you check the reading and it's like, nope, <laughs> you do not. Yeah. So a lot of these things are, are probably in, in big part nocebo. You know, people think that they're going to get this crash after the meal. Uh, and there, I mean, there postprandial somnolence, but it's not related to blood glucose levels.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, that's a, a good kind of segue. I was going to ask, um, there's a, a chapter... <laughs> My girlfriend, I read this uh, chapter out loud to her and she got kind of upset, uh, it probably due to her bias uh, towards this subject. But she was, uh, uh, I was reading the chapter on um, energy restriction and how it affects uh, energy levels. Oh, yes. And uh, it, as far as what you mentioned in the book, it doesn't really uh, affect energy, energy levels that much. Uh, could you explain that or, or elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, that,
1: that, that chapter is, from what I've read, heard from most people, a, a serious red pill moment. Right. You know, it's like Neo finding out he's in the matrix. And I have to say for me as well, I, I've read a few studies like that and I felt, okay, interesting. But when you read eight studies showing the same thing and then a meta-analysis confirming it, then it's like you can't ignore it, right? Yeah, that's what, and, I, that's
0: what I told her. I was like, there's, there's literally eight references here. I don't know how much you can debate this topic.
1: Yeah, and in completely different populations, completely different research groups. Oh, wow uh, you know, military personnel compared to like average individuals, just dieting the, the, the research very unanimously shows at least, you know, there's no research on contest prep. So I'm saying that as a caveat, but dieting itself, like energy restriction does not affect cognitive functioning. It's very clear finding in research. It does not impact your mood. It does not impact sleep quality, and it does not impact how smart you are or how your brain functions. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. In fact, some aspects of cognitive functioning, like how, how smart we are, very roughly put, improve like memory functioning, which makes sense in the sense of if you're starving, you better be active and be sharp, because all that matters right now is finding food. That's what Otherwise, I was saying about feeling. You're more done energized. For yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and, and again, if you're if you're really well fed, you become relaxed. So that that's kind of how the body works. So like I said, this has been found in military personnel. Um, a lot of subject or research where they give people modified gels. One of the famous experiments by Lieberman and others. I think for two or three days, I think it's two days, they give people only gels to eat. And with those gels, what you can do is you can, you know, it all tastes like a gel with some flavor. And you can either have it half calories or have the gels not have calories. But it's all, it's a gel with a certain taste. So you can't tell. And then you you find that if you do a lot of psychological testing on people after those two days nothing nothing is different between the two groups even though one group was essentially completely fasting and the other group was just eating at maintenance yeah so that is you know a shocking finding and the, the big difference there like the one commonality in all these studies is that people don't know that they are in energy deficit. But we cannot do that to ourselves, or it's at least very difficult. So we know we're in energy deficit. And then we get issues, then we get problems because we feel restricted. And the feeling of restriction is what saps on our, our well-being because people really like being autonomous and choice. And that that unpleasantness, that feeling of restriction and the general not feeling well, that is what makes us fatigued. That's causing willpower depletion. And that in its that in turn and hunger as well these negative emotions they you know affect everything else in turn so there's but the, the big message here is that there's nothing physical that's hurting you it's just a mental effect so that I think it's, it's really liberating it's empowering like a lot of people Absolutely. are like they, they feel like weak or something because um, when they read that chapter like you know I, I do definitely feel these effects and yeah I'm not saying you don't feel the effects I'm saying they're not physical in nature. Right. So you can use psychological trickery on yourself to get rid of these effects. And you can rest assured that when you're dieting, in fact, there's also a big chapter of the book or a big section, at least, I go into that dieting makes you a lot healthier. Like almost every biomarker you look at of someone's health improves right. when they're in energy deficit, even in lean individuals. And it's, it's crazy, like um, what, I, what I often bring up when during my last contest prep, um, I, I got some tropical virus infection or something. They couldn't really diagnose it in Brazil. And I had to get to the hospital and they performed a lot of tests and they couldn't really figure out what was wrong. They also measured my heart rate. And this was after I had taken my pre workout with caffeine. And my resting heart rate was 30. Oh, wow. So I, I had the resting heart rate of like a, a, an ultra high level endurance athlete.
0: Yeah, that's crazy.
1: And it, I mean, if you think about it, you know, it's, it's one beat per two seconds. <laughs> yeah. That's so, crazy. And I felt completely fine all my measures everything was was excellent everything was like super super excellent. So it wasn't a detrimental effect completely uh, the opposite but I felt terrible. You know, it was late stage contest prep I was probably like 6% body fat at the time so right. I wasn't feeling good. Yeah. But it's really re- reassuring to know that it's not like you're breaking down. It's a mental battle. I think, I
0: think maybe it, it may be more related to body fat levels. Like when you start to actually get like mm-hmm. really exotically lean, that's maybe yeah, where you yeah. get some of that decline in functioning. Definitely. Uh, I think
1: it's, it's still mostly psychological effects, but they are at least inevitable at this point.
0: Yeah. Right. Uh, I guess it's just, it's very, when you're very food focused, uh, I think that's uh, it, yeah, that, well, just that state in general is, is, is difficult.
1: What what I often, uh, what I like to describe a contest prep is as is you have a lot of things that you you like in life like there's there's always in every human being or almost everyone there's food and there's sex but then there's other stuff there's you know social interaction and intellectual stuff and maybe games and hobbies and when you go into contest prep if you're really getting close to starvation like pro bodybuilding condition is objectively as close to starvation as you can get you want to be at essential body fat levels these days right. so when, when you get to the level you can really feel like, if, if I look back on how I am as a person and what I like to do, I can really tell, like, even based on the movies I like, or at some point, the complete lack of any interest in movies, it's like all of these interests in my life, they are trickling down into, it's like, the basics. And at some point, sex is also gone. Like, your libido right. is gone. And there's just food. Food, right.
0: <laughs> the hierarchy, right? It's just like you yeah. can't. You can't meet these other functions you want to meet the the base level ones first right if it was water then it would be you know if it was it was below it would be like i need to get water or survive or shelter or whatever that may be right it's uh that, that makes a lot of sense so maybe a way to attenuate some of this these effects are give people a little bit more autonomy and a little bit more choice potentially mm-hmm. um obviously yeah and, have... and realizing it uh, these things realizing these things in the first place right. is a big step in itself Absolutely. I think like you said, it's empowering being able to know this and accept it and be like, okay, a lot of the reason why I maybe feel like this is just my um uh like I'm expecting to be, yeah, like I, I expect to be uh, in yes, exactly. It's a no SIBO no effect. Focused. Right, right. That's that in itself's been really empowering, just knowing that even with the caffeine thing that I've been doing, uh, you know, I, I've been able to say, like, oh, I like I don't actually now that I know these things, I don't actually feel as tired when I, you know, I'm energy restricted or maybe reduce my caffeine intake. It was a lot of just expecting to be tired or, or what, or whatnot, the nocebo effect. Cool. Uh, just a few more things and I'll get you out of here. Um, so I had one question here. Um, oh yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of, I know you are, um, like one of your, interests or or maybe even um areas of expertise is, is economics. Um and I I've always noticed this. I uh, one of the coaches I had not that long ago, probably a couple of years ago, uh, was very um uh w- w- would talk about dieting adherence and, and training and all these things. Uh he would have a lot of analogies to, to economics. Um, And I've noticed a couple other people who are more prominent in the industry as well. Um, Mm -hmm. Lane Norton, for example, Mike Isertel, my coach was uh, Stan stand efforting. A lot of these people um, have talked about these, these uh, commonalities between economics and and, diet and training adherence. What are some like really common principles that um, from economics that can be maybe applied or, or have some overlap into um, dieting and training adherence and, and things like that.
1: Yeah. I like to think about food and calories uh, as an economist and, You can largely think of calories as as money in a lot of ways. And a a big part of self-control and also the the intersection between willpower failure, productivity, and diet adherence, because willpower failure and being productive and adhering to your diet, of course, all go hand in hand. Um, Like if your willpower fails, you have trouble adhering to your diet, and you won't be as productive because you can't stay focused. And all of these things... In essence, they are an investment decision. You have to do something now that's not very enjoyable, or you have to give something up to get better results later. And the classic demonstration of this is the marshmallow experiment, by where they have kids, they give them one marshmallow, and they say, okay, either you don't eat the marshmallow, and then you get two in 15 minutes, or you can have the one marshmallow now. And of course, objectively, it's better to wait a bit and then have two, but that's difficult. You have to control yourself. And that is, in large part, the old essence of dieting. And other than hunger, I mean, in large part, it's just a matter of making these choices because you know what's, what the good choice is, but it's difficult. Your hunger and your system one, essentially, are telling you, eat it. But system two, your rational part of your brain is to say, no, not smart, wait, don't eat this because later we can eat something else that's much better. And with you know, money, it's the same. You can either spend it now or you can invest in it and then you have more money later. So, with your, your, your daily uh, energy intake, you can also think of that as a budget. Like you don't have to spend it all, you can save some, and then you get it to greater energy deficit. And you can choose what you spend it on, and you have to find foods, or you know, in economics it would be whatever goods that you have, that you can spend it on, but you can only spend it once. And the money's there, and in this sense also the calories count. So, And that's also what I like about it. The analogy with money is that a lot of people have this idea that dieting is like, there's sort of a base where you can say, I don't opt in, like I'm not doing it, but that's not true. Like you have to eat something, right? And the calories count. And the only difference is whether you know or you don't know. So people that eat normally, they're just not aware of their energy intake, but they're still eating something. And you can do the same with money. You can just not pay attention to your income and just spend and whatever, but you know, if you then run into problems, then you have serious problems. Right, right. I think there yeah, are yeah, so a lot of analogies.
0: Yeah, uh, uh, having like you, like having a budget and being aware of your 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 um, your income and expense versus your your intake and expenditure or, or something mm-hmm. like that. I think also another one is um, you mentioned is performing like a cost benefit uh, analysis, um, especially when you go down to sit and have a meal. Right, mm-hmm. um, is is the this food per hundred grams worth the calories, right. Um, that, that it, that it has. Um, yes. Energy density
1: is, is a really important one to right. always think about.
0: Yeah. And then another one that I like to talk about with my clients, um, is just the cost benefit of, of, uh, maybe, um, like say someone wants to go out and have a couple of meals, um, you know, say one, one meal is with, um, you know, some, a place that you don't enjoy as much. And then later in the week, you're going to um, maybe go to a restaurant that you really enjoy, Um, you know, assessing whether it's worth it during that, you know, earlier in the week to go and have a burger and fries, instead of maybe having chicken breast and knowing later in the week, you can have, you know, a nice steak and dessert or whatever. Um, And I I try to like, try to have people think about that and be aware of those decisions. Um, I, I think it's really important. And I, one of those, areas of economics, I guess, that overlap, but.
1: Definitely. And it's important to make those decisions beforehand, as you say, like you want to plan it because you can rationally make decisions when you're fed, but research shows what's called projection bias. Projection bias, yeah. That when we have a certain emotion, then we, we don't make decisions as rationally. And especially if we're hungry, of course, everyone knows it's, it's much more difficult to make rational decisions. And importantly, we consistently underestimate the effect that emotions are going to have on our future self. So we are very prone to think, okay, you know, I can do this or I'm going to be at this holiday with my friends in this cottage in the mountains. Now I'm just going to eat tuna and uh, whey protein. And then it's like, well, when they're all eating food that's enjoyable and you're not going to be full from just eating tuna, it's going to be a lot harder. So you really have to anticipate and think of worst case scenario essentially and make sure that you're satiated if you're going somewhere um, that you don't really enjoy in terms of restaurants i think that's something a lot of people struggle with make sure you're satiated beforehand and ideally also even look at the menu and just make the choice already like you don't have to wait until you're hungry and you're there and you have to eat something before you make that choice you can look before and then say okay these are the best choices and then that also frees up your mind. You can just focus on the company and everything. Right, right. You know this is what you're gonna eat. You don't have to think about it. And that's that's also like more big picture. Not having to think about food is so important for diet adherence. Right. Because if you if you don't have a meal plan, you don't plan things, then it's like every day anew, you have to create a new meal plan and you have to think about what you're gonna eat. And the worst thing to do when you're hungry is to think about what you have to eat, because that's the right. worst possible timing to make these choices.
0: Yeah. And this decision fatigue is a big part of that too, right? Not having to decide um, in the moment what you're going to eat, because again, with the projection bias, you don't, you underestimate how hungry you might be. So you're attenuating that by making sure you're full and satiated and you've already made the decision of what you're going to eat. So again, not having to rely on um, maybe as much of your system too um, in an, in an instance where you're, so you're setting yourself up for, for, um, you know, success. Um, Yeah. And as you sure. said,
1: like the, the most successful people actually are the people that use their, their will control the least. Yeah. And even there was a pretty recent study in students that found, interestingly, that actual objective self control ability was not related to academic success at all. Like the relation was entirely mediated by their ability not to use their self control. And that's like, even if you have good self control, like to circle back all the way to the first thing you said. You know, it's much better if you don't have to use it because you'll feel better. And, you know, even if you are sort of a robot, most people are not, you can just have a much easier, happier life. And I think there's been a big surge these past years in bodybuilding where competitors are taking a more balanced approach and making it a part of their lifestyle that's more sustainable and they're more mindful of of what they're doing as opposed to the, the more traditional tendency of hardcore restriction and then extreme binges and only sort of balancing out in the sense of you know with the extreme dedication later on you you get to the same point again but it's not a fun way to live.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's for myself why I've chose uh, to go down a more data driven path with my bodybuilding approach. I think I've had um, some coaches in the past that have preached that more unsustainable practice, and uh, I, I knew that I loved bodybuilding like deep down, but. I wasn't able to enjoy it as much, um, when I was doing these overly restrictive diets or unsustainable training programs. Um, and I think that's just a really big thing and, and why, um, you know, it's important that we understand these things. Um, so we can take more enjoyment out of our daily life, out of bodybuilding or fitness pursuit or whatever that is. And especially for someone who, you know, is just, just wants to lose weight to be healthy. Uh, it's like, there's no point Definitely. in having them Suffer through uh, any of it. They should. It should be a part of their lifestyle. It should be sustainable. It shouldn't take away from their family or personal relationships either.
1: Definitely, I think a a big, uh, really nice thing about the etymology of the word diet is that it actually comes from Greek and dieta. It meant way of life. Yeah, you know, not like this short, unsustainable period of suffering to get short-term results for your wedding or on the beach.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. and I think that it's important to look at it that way and and build these these habits and 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 whatnot that make it a way of your life and not having to um, feel like you're I guess yo-yo dieting is what a lot of people end up succumbing to. so
1: yeah, yeah.
0: well, I think that's a, a great way to close out this podcast. Uh, Meno, I know you have a PT course. Um, I could you just I know if you go to the website it'll probably explain it. Could you just briefly um, explain kind of what that PT course does? I'm, I'm thinking about, doing it myself um, shortly but i I wanted to maybe um give a little bit of a background or yeah
1: it's an online certification course that takes you from a to z even if you have no background knowledge but it's definitely going to be easier if you are familiar with bodybuilding and the like uh, so you know the basics and it takes you in a very data-driven evidence-based approach basically teaches you everything you want to know or need to know about fat loss muscle growth strength development but also going in 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 a lot of detail on diet adherence. And for the professionals, about 50% of people that do it are professionals. There's also a business chapter. So it's, it's very comprehensive. It's just the, the effort, basically it's what I and a lot of researchers have looked at as the best answer to everything you want to know about these things. Uh, based on the last uh, 10 years of our lives researching and putting the best answer to everything. So it's, it's really comprehensive. Um, so I learn new stuff sometimes when I read it. a new chapter um yeah i think it's it's like my magnum opus like all of my knowledge is is in the course that that's really cool yeah
0: that's that's awesome i uh definitely will be checking that out i can't recommend this book enough to people um i'm going to continue to recommend it to people because i just think it's for myself again has had a very large impact on my daily life i'll probably reread it again here soon um because i'm sure i missed some things and i want to implement as much and be able to. you know, use it with my clients as much as possible mm-hmm. be able to be, help them better. I think it's, it's huge in that aspect as well. Super digestible, really great book. You have a lot of good articles on your website as well. So definitely I'll, I'll link all those down below. Check those out. Is there anything else you wanted to mention, Menno? Thank you very much. That's yeah, very kind. <laughs> I really, um, you know, want to say this here, but I, I really do look up to you in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, I, aspire to be, um, at that level, at least at some point in my career. Um, so thank you for all that you do and, 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 you know, all that you produce, it really helps me. Every little thing you post on Instagram, I read through all of it. It's, it's super helpful to me. So thank you. Nice
1: man. That's really great to hear. Yeah. All
0: right, man. I'll let you get out of here. Thank you so much for your time. All right. See you. Have a great day. Bye.